Would you join me in prayer, please? Our Father in heaven, you are faithful to us. You are a good, good Father. We thank you to have the opportunity to be able to sing those words that we still believe. In a world that's out of control most of the time, that's seemingly out of control and spinning out of control, we recognize your goodness to us in the midst of all of it. We recognize your mercy and your grace on a daily basis that keeps us sustained. We recognize the fact that you have given us your word of truth, which encourages us and comforts us, but it also convicts us. God, I pray this morning that as we open that word of truth, that you would be strong in our midst. You'd open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive it, to receive the word implanted that it might encourage our souls, refresh them, save them. And I do want to thank you, Lord God, also again for for Roger, Roger and Donna's ministry. And if there is anyone, Lord, that uh, needs to be able to say, we still believe it's them, and they do, and it's very clear and apparent. And as Roger teaches our children right now, next door, we just pray your blessing and your anointing upon him. Continue to sustain their ministry as you sustain ours as well. So we give you all the glory and the praise, our Father. May we look to you now for our strength and our peace. For the sake of your name, amen. Amen. If any of you ever wonder why I go so long in my messages... Roger just gave you the exact reason why. Because when you put a saved Frenchman behind the pulpit, they don't know when to stop. And I can relate to that. Praise God. (laughs) In a past issue of Discipleship Journal, an author related an incident involving the manager of a minor league baseball team. According to the story, one, during one particular frustrating game, he was so disgusted with his center fielder's performance that he ordered him off the field and into the dugout. So the manager then proceeded to go out and play the position himself. Well, the first ball came his way, took a bad hop, and smashed him right in the mouth. And the next one was a high fly ball, which he lost in the glare of the sun, and it bounced right off his forehead. The third hit was a ripping line drive up the middle, which the manager aggressively charged with his arms outstretched. And unfortunately, the shot went straight between his arms and nailed him right in the eye. Now, fit to be tied, the put-off manager ran to the dugout, leaving a trail of colorful adjectives behind him, grabbed the center center fielder by the uniform, and he screamed at him. He said, you idiot! You've got center field so messed up that even I can't do anything with it. (laughs) Now, to watch that scenario unfold in person must have been outrageous. Clearly, the manager was way out of line by blaming his failures on the center fielder. How ridiculous you say that scenario is. But let me ask you a very serious question this morning as we begin. 
How many times have you and I been out in the field of our lives struggling with something until you're so sick and tired of your failure that you run off the field and you metaphorically grab God by the uniform and you scream, you know what, God, you've got my life so messed up that I can't do a thing with it. How regularly do we blame God charging unfair? You're trying to trap me. Now, be honest, it happens, doesn't it? It happens a lot. We blame God and we blame everyone else for our failures. Well, James is addressing that this morning as we continue in our study of James. I'd like you to turn to James chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 13 18 this morning, probably mostly 13 to 16. We might end up finishing up next week. We'll see how it goes, how long this uh, saved Frenchman wants to go. (laughs) James, chapter 1, verse 13. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In these verses in James chapter 1, verses 13, 18, we find another, another test of our attitude toward faith. He again upholds the mirror so that we can examine ourselves and how we respond in the realm of temptation. Now, we all fail at one point or another, but James wants to show us the strategic points at which we seem to fail most often so that we can make a change in our lives. In the realm of temptations, James basically says that there's a principle that we all need to learn if we're to have the right attitude here. We resist temptations by recognizing the truth. The truth about temptations themselves, the truth about God, and the truth about us. And the sooner we master those things, the better off we're going to be. Amen? Let's look at the first thing that James really trying to tell us this morning. And I would say it's this, that we need to recognize the source from which temptations originate. And I'm going to tell you something right now, right from the get-go, before we develop it, that the source of sin is always self. We all want an easy way out of sin, don't we? We all want to free ourselves from the personal responsibility that we have. So just as the baseball team manager reacted, we're usually looking for someone else to blame for our bad behavior. The fact of the matter is that deep down within our hearts, we ultimately want to blame God. 
forever getting us into this mess. After all, he is sovereign, isn't he? Nothing happens unless he allows it, correct? Therefore, he's the one that's really at fault. Am I right? Well, now, don't try to pull the wool over everyone's eyes by acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. If you can honestly say that you've never felt the slightest bit like blaming God for tempting you to sin, then you get a buy on this message, okay? This sermon's not really for you. But if you're human, and I think you are, you look alive this morning. If you're human, you know what I'm talking about. James knew what was happening too. That's why he says in the form of a command, let no man say, or let no one say. The mere fact that this rebuke is even written implies that blame shifting whether directly or indirectly, was going on. And James had to address it. And James says in no uncertain terms, stop blaming God for your own failure. Stop blaming God for your own failure. And we do blame him, don't we? It's nothing new, you know. Blame shifting started with the very first sin ever committed. Turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. You know where I'm going with this. So I won't spend a lot of time lingering over this. But here's the deal. God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. So all they had to do was just stay away from that tree. But you know the story. They didn't do it, right? Eve ate, shared with Adam. They both had their eyes opened. And then they went and hid. In verse 8, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself, and he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? As if God didn't already know. And the man said, What did the man say? Yes, I did. I'm sorry. (laughs) That woman that you gave me, right? She gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, what? I'm sorry. Yes, I did it. The serpent, he's the guilty one. He deceived me, and I ate, and the Lord God turned to the serpent. And notice how God does this now. God, in reverse order, nails every single person that was guilty from the the serpent, and then he moves to the woman, and then he ends up with the man who has the ultimate responsibility here. But the neat thing is in the midst of this is in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You know what that is? It's called the proto-evangelium, which means the first gospel. That is the first hint of God's grace right here. God's already got the plan for our salvation. Okay? 
So he curses the serpent, and he curses the woman, and he curses the man, and he curses everything is cursed now because of sin. But there's hope in verse 15. You know, sometimes we don't come out and blame God directly, but we do just what they did. We imply that he is behind the whole thing, just like Adam did. Adam wasn't really blaming his wife, because if you look at the words, it says, the woman that you gave me. He's blaming God. We don't want to blame ourselves for our dilemmas. We blame it on the lack of rest. We blame it, blame it on a bad day at work or a stressed out schedule. You name it, we've got an excuse for it. And you know, teens, you're no different. I, I've heard it both from both sides. When I was growing up in high school, sounds pretty funny when they're put together, but I had friends in high school who would say something similar to this regarding their poor choices. It's my parents' fault. Uh, there's too strict, you know. Put too many rules on me. I have to sneak off to get any freedom at all. And of course, I run into tempting situations when I'm out there sneaking off. And I probably would never have encountered them if I didn't have to hide things and lie to my overstrict parents. And then on the other side, I had friends that said just the opposite, who'd lament my parents let me do too much. They give me too much freedom. Anything goes. They don't have any rules for me. Maybe if they cared more, they would put up a few more fences that would keep me from running into all these temptations. You see, we all do it, don't we? We blame God for either his strictness or his freedom. James says, stop doing it. Let no man say. Why? Because we're not acknowledging the real source of our temptations, are we? Verse 13, God is not the source. Verse 13, James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You know this already, but it bears repeating that the word tempt in this text is very important to understand. At least James thought it was because he used it five times in these two verses. As I told you previously, as we're studying James, the word for tempt is the same word that's translated trial or test in verse 1 and in verse 12. In those cases, it's used as something which produces a good end, i.e. perseverance, endurance, a mature character, an approved faith. But this word is a two-sided coin. What God means for our good because of our inward bent on sin, which theologically that's called depravity, it means that we are tainted. doesn't mean that everything we do is completely evil. It just means that everything we do is tainted a little bit. There's always the potential for sin. This word is a two-sided coin here. It says because... What God means for our good can result in a wrong reaction on our part. Sin has a sequence. And it always begins with self. I'll explain that in more detail in a few minutes. Most translations here use the word tempt throughout the entire verse 13. But listen to another way of translating this verse which connects James' flow of thought from the previous verses more understandably into this text. 
Look at it like this. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. See that? For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Does that make more sense? Because that's a valid translation of that verse. That makes so much more sense to me. James' concern is to help us to resist the temptations that often accompany trials because every trial brings with it the possibility of a temptation. As one commentator put it, financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence for that matter. Thus, testing almost always includes the possibility of temptation and temptation itself is a test. But James is going to show us that the temptations themselves don't originate with God, but they rise up from within us. They are not the tool nor the desire of our Father in heaven. You have to get a handle on that. That's what James is trying to underscore. God's testing is a test which he desires the man to succeed in, not fail. Okay, so in verse 1 and in verse 12, that's what he's talking about. He doesn't try to trip us up. Think of a story when I was a little kid, and you guys are probably, you're either going to laugh or you're going to cry about this one. When I was a little kid and I lived in the city in Rhode Island, we used to ride our bikes, my, my brother and I ride our bikes up and down the sidewalk. And I remember one time sitting on the edge, and I, and I had this thought, I'm going to have my brother ride his bicycle by me. And I have, a, I have this broomstick that I grabbed. So he's riding by, and I shoot that broomstick right through the front wheel spokes, it stopped him dead, and he went flying head over heels right over the handlebars onto the, onto the concrete. Of course, you know what happens then, right? You thought it was going to be funny until it actually happened, and it's not so funny anymore, is it? I got in some big trouble. Luckily, he didn't really hurt himself. But the point is, God's not trying to do that to us. He's not trying to trip us up. He doesn't get any joy out of seeing us fall. He doesn't draw us into temptation. He does not test us in hopes of soliciting evil from us. James explains why right here in two statements about God's essential nature, which incidentally we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place that we find these two elements of God's essential nature this way. James says, number one, God cannot be tempted to do evil. And number two, he doesn't tempt anyone to commit evil, okay? In other words, God is not susceptible to evil. It has no appeal to him at all, unlike us. Because sin appeals to us, you know why? Because we have a sin nature. It draws us like a magnet. God has no such nature. He absolutely abhors and hates evil couple of scriptures for you. Psalm chapter 5, Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No 
evil dwells with you. Psalm, Psalm 92, verse 15 says this, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Bless you. Because of what God is and because of who God is, he never solicits anyone to do what is wrong. As Douglas Moo writes, God may bring or allow trials, but he is not, James insists, the author of temptation. It is our own corrupt nature that twists everything that God has meant for good into something evil or potentially evil. God himself is not found in the genealogy of sin. So God is not the source. So what is the source? James says man is the source. Men and women, humanity, we are the source. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. How? By his what? His own lust. His own lust. Man's own desire and what he does with it is the problem. The term lust here almost always carries a negative connotation, but in the Greek language, it is actually a neutral term. It simply means a very strong desire directed toward an object. That's what the word itself means in the original language. And so it is most often used in conjunction with evil desires, but Jesus himself actually used this term emphatically to describe himself. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 15, which, uh, which when we translate it literally, it would read this way. With lust or with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus is using the same term that James is here, only in a positive context. So the word itself is not evil, but there are some connotations with it. Jesus had no sin nature, therefore his strong desire could never be twisted into a kind of evil lust or sinful lust that we often attribute to the word. It is not our God-given desires that are evil, okay? Let's put it this way. That's what I'm trying to make the point. The desires are not necessarily evil in and of themselves. It is what we do with those desires, that gives birth to sin. Let me give you an illustration. Desires are necessary for human survival, but our experience proves that our desires and our cravings are predominantly self-centered. They are sinful whenever they are self-serving and against the will of God. So it is our sinful nature that corrupts our good desires, okay? For instance, God has given us the desire for food. We need it to survive, right? But out of our sinful hearts come gluttony. Comes gluttony. God has given us a desire for the appreciation of beauty. And out of our own sinful hearts, we have produced idolatry. God has given us a desire for intimacy, and out of our sinful hearts, we have produced adultery. God has given us a desire for sex, and he has blessed it within the confines of marriage. But out of our sinful hearts, we have produced promiscuity, prostitution, and sexual perversion of any kind. 
God has given us the desire for expressing ourselves creatively in the arts. But out of our sinful hearts, we have produced pornographic literature, portraiture, and music, which does not glorify God at all. You see, we have taken good desires that God has planted within our souls and we have corrupted them by the sin nature that's within us. Mark chapter 7 makes this very clear. Jesus lays it right out for us. See, the Pharisees didn't really get this. Jesus says in verse 15 of Mark chapter 7, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man, that's what defiles the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the hearts of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from where? Within. And they do what? They defile the man. So make no mistake about it, God is not the source of our temptations. We are. So James says, the first thing that you need to recognize in order to resist temptation is the source from which it originates. Not God, but us. An Englishman named Bobby Leach stunned the world years ago by plunging over Niagara Falls in a barrel. And he did it without suffering harm. Now, what makes a guy do that is beyond me. But he did it. And he did it without suffering harm. But that's not, that that is an amazing thing, isn't it? Would you agree? My family and I went there one summer. And I can tell you, after seeing the intensity of those falls, what Mr. Leach did is incomprehensible. A little crazy. But what is even more incomprehensible to me and more amazing is that some years later, this same man slipped on an orange peel while walking down the street and ended up in the hospital with a badly fractured leg. Does that make sense? What am I trying to say with that? This serves to point out that while a myriad of huge temptations roar all around us like Niagara Falls that never seem to bother us, one tiny little insignificant incident in our lives may cause our downfall. You know why? Simply because we're not paying attention. We're not paying attention. We're not looking for it. That illustrates the importance of James's second point here regarding the recognition of temptation. He underscores the fact that, number two, we need to recognize the sequence in which temptation occurs. Verses 14 and 15. But each one is, carried, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The sequence of sin will lead to death. Memorize that one. 
That's important. Temptation begins when we are lured by our own lust, it says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desires. The words here, carried away and enticed, are words which actually were used by Jewish authors to describe the hunter or the fisherman who lured his prey from its resting place by using bait to entice it or a net to trap it or or, or to take the hook. The terms were later used to describe the activities of a harlot. In fact, James may even had in mind the Old Testament passage in which these kinds of descriptions take place. Just hold your finger in James and turn back to Proverbs chapter 7 for a moment. You might know this passage. If you don't, you probably ought to. Proverbs chapter 7, verse, beginning in verse 21. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here, but the whole chapter 7 really talks about the, decept, the deception and the wiles of the, of the prostitute and the harlot. 21. With her many persuasions, she, what? Entices him. With her flattering lips, she what? Seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter. How does an ox go to slaughter? Willingly? Unknowingly, right? Or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Verse 23, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. You see the sequence there that James is talking about? The desire that entices gives birth to sin, which brings forth death. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 9 also says something very similar. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Again, it's that whole idea of desire leads to sin, leads to death. We're talking about entrapment here. In criminal law, the term entrapment is a practice whereby a law enforcement agent induces a person to commit a criminal offense that the person would have otherwise been unlikely to commit, okay? But we already know from James's previous verses that God does not do that to us, correct? Is that right? So what James is really revealing here is that this kind of entrapment is of one's own free will. Following me so far? At this point, James isn't even allowing us to blame Satan as the source, even though he mentions him later on in chapter 4, verse 7. No, his clear focus in this text is our own personal responsibility, and that's where we need to begin. Every sin, said Alistair Begg, is an inside job. Every sin is an inside job. Temptation cannot be laid at the feet of God. Temptation cannot be ascribed to our environment or ultimately to someone else. Everyone, says James, is dragged away and enticed by their own 
evil desires. Now, the first effect of lust is to draw one out of a resting position, okay? The second effect is to lure him into danger by the use of bait. If you want contemporary examples, no one has to look very much further than their own last fall. How did it happen? Think back in your mind how it happened. Unpack the sequence and see if it does not follow what James is saying. Society's preoccupation with sex is the quintessential poster child sin here. Right? Last year, Utah's state legislature declared pornography a public health crisis. Well, it is, and it's much more than that. So whether it's 50 shades of gray or 50 shades darker for women or porn sites for men, the questions are the same. Let me ask them to you because James implies them. Were you entrapped by the words or by the images? Were you lured by a pop-up screen on your computer that reached out of that tablet and grabbed you by the ears and forced your face not to turn away? Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That's what people say. Ladies, did the book jump off the shelf into your purse that you shouldn't be reading? Did the movie tickets drop into your lap one day? No. For all of us, it was our uncontrolled desire. Lust that led you and I to push the limit. Now, you may argue that you were set up, but let me tell you what the Word of God says. Your own lust got you caught, not God. Nobody got you set up. You can blame no one but yourself. You didn't have to indulge the desire. You didn't have to click the mouse. You didn't have to go out with the girls that night. No one is tempted by anything they don't already have a desire for. Let me say that again. No one is tempted by anything they didn't already have a desire for. Now, all of us have different desires. All of us are tempted by different things. There are things that you're tempted by that I would never even give a second thought and vice versa. We just have to be in tune with what James is saying here and get a handle on what your inward desires are and how potentially sinful they can become if we indulge them. It happens to every single one of us every time we sin. We must recognize the beginning of the sequence and nip it in the bud because we're lured and dragged away by our own desires and lusts. So get a check on those. The turning point is when we indulge them. Up to that point, there is no sin. Let me repeat this. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation is not a sin. That's a very important point. Don't feel that you are somehow out of relationship with the Lord simply because you are being tempted in your life. This is kind of backhanded way of encouraging you, okay? If you're under temptation and you're constantly struggling with temptation, don't let the evil one or don't do it yourself beat yourself up because you're being tempted. Temptation is not the sin, Temptation happened to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, He was tempted in all ways 
as we are. He suffered the temptations we suffered. And it will happen to us until the day we die. It's not going away anytime soon, my friends. What you and I must deeply understand is, now really get this, get your head around this. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to the temptation. Get that? Sin becomes alive when the seed of lust is fertilized by our conscious choice to indulge our desires either in the flesh by action or in the mind by fantasy. Either way, it's sin, Jesus said. Here's the danger zone. I've got this in red in my notes. You should put it down in your notes. The danger zone is the intersection between desire and opportunity. When desire and opportunity meet, Sin is conceived. The danger zone is the intersection between desire and opportunity. In order to avoid letting temptation become sin, Scripture tells us some very clear things. We'll get into those more probably next week. But deny worldly lusts, Titus 2, 12 says. And another one, flee from youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2, 22 says. Deny Flee. I dare say that few speed records are being broken by people running from temptation these days. Am I right? Yet that's what we're to do as a first response, according to the Bible. Here's the deal. If the danger zone is the intersection between desire and opportunity, guess what we need to do? We need to put distance between desire and opportunity. They cannot intersect. A person builds and baits his own trap by his own inward desires, James says, where temptation is indulged at that intersection, there is sin. And that's the next step in the sequence, that lust breeds the snare of sin. Verse 15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lust is the mother of sin. You know how it works, don't you? We usually know at what point we begin to indulge that temptation and cross that line into the realm of sin. Why do we do it? But we all do. We somehow convince ourselves that we can handle it, and before you know it, it's handling us. It's like hooking yourself with a fish hook. Anybody ever done that? And your desire is to free that hook, so what do you do? You pull on the line. Well, not a good idea. The solution is to ask someone else to help you remove the hook, to help set you free. You try to do it yourself, you're going to make it worse. Ask God. He will do it. If you don't, you're heading for a world of trouble, and you know what that world smells like? It smells like a morgue. That's what James says. It reeks of death. That's the last step in the death spiral, by the way. Sin brings forth the destruction of death. Verse 15 again. Sin, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death. If enticement 
refers to the harlot's tactics, then indulging those tactics impregnates the harlot and she gives birth to sin. When sin fully matures, it brings forth death. Each lust gives birth to its own kind of sin and sin becomes full grown when it becomes a habit which determines ultimately a man's character, which determines a person's destiny. They're called life-dominating sins. They control you. And by now, I'm sure you have almost memorized the oft-repeated proverbs. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. The Apostle Peter said it this way, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That's 2 Peter 2, verse 19. Jesus said it another way in John chapter 8, verse 34. He said, everyone who commits sin as a regular habit is the slave of sin. And then he goes on to say, but the son can set you free. Set you free indeed. See, it starts with a thought. And when you toy with the thought long enough, it ultimately results in an action. If you dwell on it enough, the chances are that you will eventually do it. It's very simple. And sin, as a way of life, always leads to destruction in the end. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, what did she do? She took from its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. You see the pattern? She saw that the tree was good. It was a delight to her eyes. The tree was desirable to make you wise. There's the intersection, desire and opportunity, and she took. And she ate, and she gave it to her husband. So it's not enough that she sinned, but she had to share it with somebody else. And it goes on to say that she hid, they hid themselves and concealed it, right? We just saw that. Every single sequence of sin, the major ones in the Bible, you can always trace the same pattern. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's another quintessential example of this. David's sin with Bathsheba. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but just let me give you the sequence as it's written out here. He was walking on the roof when he should have been at war. He's actually at home in Jerusalem. He's walking on the roof, and it says in verse 2, he saw a woman bathing. All right, so far so good. He saw somebody. He hasn't sinned yet, right? He saw. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Okay, so maybe now he saw a little too long. So David sent and inquired, "Uh uh-oh, now we're in trouble. There's the crossing of the line. Verse 4 says, David sent messengers and took her, and he used his power as king to have her come to him, and then he lay with her. She got pregnant, and then what did he do? He tried to cover it up. But before he tried to cover it up, I mean, but after he tried to cover it up, he figured out that he couldn't do that, he had her husband killed. So what did it lead to? There was 
There was a thought, right? There was a desire. Then it gave birth to sin, and sin brought forth death. And not just the death of that woman's husband, but it also brought forth death in his own family. The child died, and all kinds of consequences happened after that. You know the story. Joshua chapter 7, the same kind of thing happened to Achan when he stole what was under the ban. And if you read down through Joshua chapter 7, verses 19 to 21, and verse 25, you see that same pattern. When Achan had to explain his actions, Achan said, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, I coveted them, then I took them, and I concealed them in my tent. So he saw, he desired, he took, he concealed. And what happened to Achan and his whole entire family? They were stoned to death. But before that, how many people died because they went to Ai and there was sin in the camp and they got defeated? Sin always leads to some sort of death. Look at the sequence of sin. They saw, they desired, they took, they concealed. It's the same way every time it happens to us. Remember that pattern because that's exactly the way we're drawn into sin. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's the way Eve was drawn into sin. David Achan, and that's the way that Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness as well. But he didn't sin. Jesus said, you know, we try to cover it up, but Jesus said there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known in Matthew chapter 10. Sin will eventually bring about death. And Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 6. He said, the wages of sin is death, right? Physical death, spiritual death, death in all forms is traceable to sin. Now, if you think you can handle whatever temptation you're indulging in right now, you need to know in the end that it's going to bring forth death in your life. It's going to kill you. It might not kill you physically, but it's going to create this trajectory of, of, of walking in death. That's why James says in verse 16, don't be deceived. Stop deceiving yourselves. Stop allowing yourselves to be deceived. And this warning in verse 16 goes in two directions. It goes back about the sequence of sin and it points forward to the antidote for that verses 17 and 18, which we're going to deal with next week. But listen, physical death and spiritual death, death in all forms, it's all part of the picture. It relates, you know, what James is trying to do here is he's trying to get us to pay attention. Don't be deceived about the source of your temptation or the consequences of sin. Don't try to rationalize. That's the lie of the enemy. Way back in the first temptation when he deceived Eve, he did it. What did he deceive her into thinking? He questioned both the source and the consequences, right? In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent said to Eve, surely God did not say, questioning the source. And then in, in, chapter, in verse 4, he says, surely you will not die, questioning the consequences. James says, don't be, be deceived. And you know, the serpent said to Eve, surely you will not die. He was lying, wasn't he? 
We have died, haven't we? Ever since Adam, we've died. In one way or another, spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically, morally. What a stinking liar Satan is. Don't give him any place. Don't give him one ounce of ground in your life. I read this week in my study that in Jewish thinking, death was often seen more as a trajectory than a destination. A Jewish Christian saw people as either traveling the path of life, walking with Christ in the spirit, or the path of death, walking apart from Christ in the flesh. And this death-like existence is the opposite of the abundant life that Christ wants to give to us. No longer can the sinner walking in death live out the true life of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For those walking in death, gone are the signs of spiritual vitality. That's the kind of death I think that James has in mind here. Because I know a lot of people, and you probably do too, who are like the walking dead. They've spent so long in their sin that it's like they're living this death-like existence. Dead to their joy, dead to the peace in their life, dead to the comfort that Jesus brings. And this might be describing you this morning. Well, first, James says, look, he's warning us in two directions. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. And I love the way he says that. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is not a hammer coming down on you this morning. You are my beloved brethren. James is talking to us. He's talking to me and I'm talking to you. Don't be deceived. God's not trying to entrap you. And neither is he holding back anything from you. And that's the second direction. Verses 17 and 18, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't change. He continues to do this. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Again, that's the lie that Satan has put forth in the garden, right? For God knows that the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, not knowing, uh, knowing good and evil. That's what he said. That was the big deception, wasn't it? God's holding back something good from you. He knows something that you don't. What a lie again. You know how God knows evil? God knows evil in the sense that a surgeon knows something about a physical condition. He knows it, but he's not participating in it, right? It has no part in him. And he didn't want us participating in it either. What Eve did not know was that by taking the bait and crossing that line, she became so unlike God that God who loves us beyond measure then had to lower himself to become like us. Do you ever think about it that way? She didn't become like God, knowing good and evil like God knows good and evil. She became unlike God, knowing evil from the inside out. 
And so God had to lower himself to become like us, and he took on human flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Spirit without original sin, remained perfectly sinless in the midst of his temptation, who died and rose again to bring us the possibility of new life in order to redeem what sin had stolen from us, what sin had brought down upon us, death. You see, God is not holding back one thing from us. Instead, he is giving us everything. Everything. And there it is, right there, in verses 17 and 18. There is an antidote. To this, You know, Sinclair Ferguson gave a talk in which he summarized James' sequence, cycle of sin, in six words. It begins with attraction, goes to deception, then to preoccupation, then to conception, then to subjection, and that's where, that's when you become enslaved, consumed, and addicted. And that moves to desperation. And you know what happens there? That's the death part. That's where you're confronted by Satan, and he says to you, you know what? You're in such dire circumstances right now that there is no way out and there is no way back. You might as well hang it up. Don't even consider yourself a Christian anymore because God would never accept you. Or if you're not a Christian, he would say, don't even think about becoming a Christian because you're so bad that God would never accept you. That's not what verses 17 and 18 say. That's not what James says. James says there is a way back. There is a way through. There is a way out. There's an antidote to this problem. There is a way out of this cycle of temptation and sin, and it's involved in the gospel. And that's what 17 and 18 is about, and that's what we're going to look at next week. The fact is, is that Christ went to the cross for you, and he took on your sin so that you wouldn't have to die. So you wouldn't have to walk in death. So you could walk in abundant life. And this is, in the realm of temptation, this is the most important thing to recognize. That's why I'm splitting it out and doing it next week. Because we recognize, we need to recognize the salvation by which temptations are overcome. We need to recognize that, and that's what we're going to unpack. So let me close. I guess the saved Frenchman's over. In Billy Graham's book, The Holy Spirit, Activating God's Power in Your Life, He begins with a chapter on Christian's inner struggle with this legendary story, which many of you have probably undoubtedly heard before. Bon Eskimo, a fisherman who came to town every Saturday afternoon, and he always brought his two dogs with him, right? One was white, the other was black, and he had taught them to fight on command. So every Saturday afternoon in the town square, the people would gather, and these two dogs would fight, and the fishermen would take bets. One Saturday, the black dog would win. Another Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fisherman always won. His friends began to ask him, how, how, how in the world are you doing this? He said, well, it's very easy. I starve one and I feed the other. And the one I feed is always the one who wins. So there's no getting around the fact that we will struggle with competing desires until the day that Christ calls us home, Right? The question today is, which dog are you going to feed? Which one are you going to feed and which one are you going to starve? Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He's going to redeem those desires that you have for good and he's going to give you the things that he wants you to desire. That's, that's the deal. You want to break the cycle of sin and death? 
come to Jesus. You're tired of existing as, as a walking dead person? Come under new ownership. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for making us a way. Thank you for showing us through your half-brother, James, using him, Lord, to pen the words so that we could understand the sequence of sin. And thank you, our Father, for the Holy Spirit, which will bring this to our memory when we need, need it this week. And so I commend each and every person in this room, myself included, to your care, Lord, to the word of your testimony here in James. May we recall it and may we apply it when the need arises. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.